So this morning is the last of um, six sessions on wise speech practice. So at the end of our time this morning, about you know, 11 a.m., everyone will be sent out into the world <laughs> to be ambassadors of wise speech. And it's a very challenging practice. I think uh, those of us who've been here uh, some or most of the last sessions uh, see that it's both a challenging practice and um, a central practice for most of us. One of the main ways that we actually can bring practice into the field of action and interaction. So much of our uh, spiritual practice, particularly as we have inherited much material from the Buddhist tradition, is spent in silent, relatively non-interactive practice, which is very beautiful and valuable. But it also uh, needs, in in many ways, to be connected, as it was traditionally, to uh, speech and to other forms of action. And again, I, I find it quite remarkable that when we look to this model of the Eightfold Path, which is the main practical way that core qualities of compassion and understanding and wisdom get developed, one of the factors, one of the eight factors, is related to speech. That's very interesting for people who we might think of as being these silent meditators, always developing great loving kindness and wisdom by going inside continually. Interesting. Speech practice, one of the eight factors, particularly important for most of us, given the kind of lives we have, that we're speaking and talking. And there are dangers when we uh, practice meditation of the meditation practice being confined or compartmentalized so that now I'm being mindful. Okay, now I leave my life. Who knows what happens? <laughs> you know? And so uh, the speech practice and the focus on speech practice is a really uh, intentional uh, effort to give support and clarification of how to have our sense of developing mindfulness, awareness, compassion, wisdom come out in the middle of interaction. And for those who have not been here uh, for all of the times or for some of the other times, our last five sessions are available to be uh, heard on the website uh, Dharma Seed, dharmaseed.org. So it's a great service that they, um, they provide. Today the focus continues from last time to be that of practicing with speech when the conditions are difficult. I'm going to presume to some extent the foundations that we've developed in the previous sessions. And I'll just name those. And again, for those here who haven't been to all those sessions, we can continue to develop. And the way that I really suggest that we develop in speech practice is to take one area of speech practice 
one fairly small area and devote a week to it or devote two weeks to it and think about it in the mornings and write it on your hands and put it on your dashboard or have sheets of paper in front of you at meetings or you know, as I mentioned, one student of mine with her teenage daughter at difficult moments, she put the core ethical guidelines for wise speech on her hand facing her as she spoke to her daughter about difficult matters. <laughs> so um, we have to find all sorts of ways to make this practice come alive, all sorts of uh, little tricks that help remember, us remember. Because this practice in itself is not hugely difficult. Remembering in the course of busy lives is hugely difficult. And the way that we're going to learn this is by remembering and, in a sense, practicing over and over again. These talks can be helpful and I hope can be reference points, but just listening to a talk only goes so far. And that the real development in this area, as with our practice generally, requires the repetition of coming back and developing qualities. That's, that's really what we do here. This is really practice-oriented. Really, the idea is that we can get energy, inspiration, perspective, but the remembering to practice in a daily basis is where we go, is really how we develop. And, and so, in the last weeks, we've focused on the ethical guidelines, uh, particularly as given by the Buddha, of having, seeing if our speech can be guided by being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a warm heart, even sometimes a tough warm heart. Uh, and I always have to say that. And, and also the uh, factor of appropriateness, good timing, non-distractedness of speech. And those ethical guidelines, very, very crucial working with one or more of the ethical guidelines, wonderful practice could be developed over a week, several weeks, and so forth. Secondly, the capacity to be in the middle of speech and have mindfulness. We could say developing inner and outer attention at the same time. Not easy. Uh, and I encourage you just to experiment with that, as I've done the last few times. As you listen, have some inner mindfulness even right now, of just some awareness of the body. Notice if you have thoughts, reactions. Again, um, I won't ask for names, but if you think of lunch or think of in the middle of the talk, think of what you're going to do after the talk's over. That, I know that occasionally happens. I don't take it personally. <laughs> so um, it probably was happening with the Buddha. The you know, Buddha was probably giving his talks and people who were not highly developed in mindfulness or might have had special things happening in their lives probably were sitting there and the Buddha was talking and saying, okay, after, how long is this talk going to go on? After he's finished, I'm going to go do that. Right. So just to track internally what's happening, to notice what's, what's going on. And then the last uh, three sessions, really, especially the, the first two, we brought in the model of nonviolent communication interpreted as a refinement of mindfulness. And last time particularly, we looked at how to bring some of these resources in a beginning way into looking at um, difficult speech conditions. So what I want to do is pretty briefly give a bunch of suggestions and what we might call guidelines for being 
with difficult speech conditions. And then I want to do two exercises together and then have some discussion. So first of all, I'd like you to reflect on, and this is just for yourself really, reflect on a difficult speech situation, particularly one that is recurring. In other words, it could be a difficult speech situation with a coworker, a boss, a family member, a friend. Degree of difficulty out of a scale of 10, 6 to 7, possibly 8, but not 10. Okay. We practice, I think you, I think we know we practice in, with lesser degrees of difficulties and work up to the really difficult. So just bring to mind, if you want to go inside for a few moments, bring to mind a difficult speech situation with that degree of difficulty. And just bring to mind right now a typical interaction that might have occurred. You can imagine the place, the situation what you might say, what some of your, and for the sake of simplicity, let's just have this be with one person. You can imagine, bring to mind your reactions, the other person's reactions, your feelings. And reflect on a time in which you did not speak wisely in this difficult situation. Even if it was the best you could do. And then was there a time in which you spoke more skillfully in this situation with this person? What did that look like? And I'll invite you, as we come back to being with the whole group, I'll invite you to keep this example with you as we explore how to be more skillful with difficult speech situations. You can bring it to mind and test it out. And, as we, and we'll actually, in the exercises, we'll come back to this situation. So hopefully, by, the, by 11 o'clock, even though you may not be totally, we not, may not be totally fully developed in speech practice, we may have some insight into this particular situation. Um, so first, uh, I want to give four initial uh, readings or quotations about being with difficult speech situations. The first is from Socrates. So 
almost 2,500 years ago, and I got this from Sarah Sparling, who is on the staff here. When we were doing some work, I was doing some work with the Spirit Rock staff on wise speech over a four-month period, and she brought this in one of our sessions from Socrates. The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. Pretty strong. The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. So be warned. <laughs> okay. The second is a poem, uh, first few lines of a poem from William Stafford. And it really has to do with the way that sometimes when speech doesn't go well in difficult conditions, we, there's a kind of breakdown of communication. This is from a poem called A Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. And following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. And the third is from the Buddha. about the importance, really, of difficult speech situations as a way for us to be tested and to grow. A practitioner may be extremely kind and extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him or her. (laughs) But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch one that it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. (laughs) Quite to the point, right? (laughs) And the last is from uh, Shantideva from the uh, 8th century, uh, (coughs) who wrote the famous text called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. The Bodhisattva is the being particularly developed and Mahayana Buddhism dedicated to help others and also go for one's own awakening. And talking about the importance of having difficult people in one's life. (laughs) Therefore, just like a treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for my enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Mm. So, a few words about difficult speech situations, and we'll do some exercises together. Um, It's very, very helpful... And this was really what we saw, particularly in the last few weeks. It's very, very helpful to see that what makes a difficult speech situation difficult is not necessarily an objective external quality of the situation. What makes a difficult speech situation difficult is the fact that I have difficult experiences. I have difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, 
I get triggered. I become reactive. What that suggests is what we were looking at last time, that a major part of speech practice is taking responsibility for my own experience, which is really at the heart, I think, of Buddhist practice in a way that we um, don't look for happiness, as it were, externally, or as in those book titles, in all the wrong places. Right? That we actually, not to say that external conditions can't influence us, can have an effect, but there's this deep teaching that the core of happiness comes from a way that we relate to what happens rather than to requiring this or that to happen for me to be happy. It's a radical teaching. And with speech practice, we follow that by being very careful about language, as we saw the last few weeks, that implies that someone else is causing my experience, that someone else is causing me to be reactive or triggered. And a lot of the direction of the nonviolent communication work is to come back to first-person experience. I feel frustrated. When that happened, I feel frustrated, I felt angry, um, and so forth, rather than to say, um, when you manipulated me like that... (laughs) Or, I feel manipulated. Manipulated, uh, Feeling manipulated, we know what that means, right? We know, and we might translate it into first-person experience, but there is an interpretation. It's really, as it were, postulating that the other is causing my bad experience. So an initial starting point for difficult speech practice is taking responsibility for my own experience. Again, not to say the other person is not responsible as well but I take a lot of responsibility for my own reactions. I don't attribute the cause of the reactions to the other person. And typically, our conditioning does have us do that. When we look at our conditioned ways of reacting and the way that we use speech, we often do attribute causality to the other in our thinking, in our language, sometimes in our very words, to say, I feel disrespected is to attribute causality to the other person, meaning that the other person directly caused. And again, that sense of direct cause is distinct from saying that other person catalyzed it or that other, when that happened, this is where I went. So maybe we could say those are I'm talking about a kind of direct causality, like this directly causes this, this can only lead to this happening. And when we have mindfulness, we can see that we actually have choices, that nothing will necessarily cause me to be reactive. If I, in my conditioning, some things will lead me very likely to be reactive. But that's, you're getting the point, that's not the same as direct causality. That's a pretty important point here. And we have to be careful for language we use, which we will tend to do when we're triggered, in which we, in our words, in our attitudes, in our thinking, make it sound like the other person is the problem and I'm just this innocent person who had these bad things happen to me. Because the other person is inherently, clearly, a problem. (laughs) 
So we're asked to work with those thoughts in difficult situations. You can see why it's challenging because our conditioning has us go there towards polarized communication in which typically I'm right, the other person's wrong, and the other person says the same thing. A bit of a standoff, right? (laughs) Who's going to win? Sometimes when there's power involved, a person with power can seemingly win. Actually, if it's not based on real experience, it doesn't last that long, even when there's power, power involved. As we know from the rise and fall of empires, (laughs) from witnessing that, or witnessing people in power who do things that aren't so skillful, it doesn't last forever. That's a big point. I might come back to that later. So it's also very helpful in speech situations to think, and I sometimes like to think that in any given speech situation involving two people, there are five opportunities for practice. And it's very helpful to see that because sometimes we think this situation is difficult. The other person is hopelessly, what, blank, blank, blank. (laughs) Aggressive, clueless, conditioned, unmindful, bad Buddhist, (laughs) whatever unspiritual, politically incorrect, whatever it might be. And, um, but it's helpful to see that there are five options or five aspects of practice. In any given dyad, I can do inner work on what's happening for me. I can try to use skillful language. In other words, more, as we might say, external practice. The other person can do the same. And then it's also a fifth area of practice is that we can collaboratively work to be more skillful in our speech and in our being with each other. So those are five areas. Even in the worst speech situation, and there are speech situations where the other person has no sense of inner practice or outer practice. And there may be not much chance of collaborative, cooperative work together. Even in those worst case scenarios, I can do the first two forms of practice. I can do inner work on myself and learn a lot, And I can also be as skillful in my language as possible. And I believe, and if we had more time, and maybe this come out in the discussion, I believe that even situations which look like the other person is a stone wall, my skillful language can actually potentially shift the situation. I believe that, and I've seen that quite often. And so we have to watch our minds that says nothing is possible, that... And it may be the case that not much happens. But I think even in very difficult situations, um, there's potential. And certainly, I can always do my own practice. And that's really a crucial point. Even with difficult situations, even ones that seem like there's no responsiveness from the other, I can still do my practice. And if I stay with my own integrity, Sometimes uh, things that are quite uh, mysterious happen. So we, t- we also, uh, when we start taking difficult speech situations as learning opportunities, things get interesting. And as, as I 
like to say, when we get to a point where we get actually very interested in our own difficulties and our own suffering even, and want to learn more, practice accelerates. Our conditioned way of being with our difficulties and our sufferings is to think of them as problems. How do I get rid of these? How do I get back to my inherent peacefulness? And so there's a certain level of maturity that leads to us taking our difficulties and suffering as challenges and starting points for exploration. The conditions have to be right for that. You know, if we're being overwhelmed, if we're, being, if we're really overwhelmed with what's happening, that may not be the right time to take difficulties and suffering as an opportunity to learn. I want to acknowledge that that's not always something we should just go for. You know, gosh, I've been totally knocked around the last three weeks. Oh, another, I'm knocked around again. Oh, wonderful opportunity for learning. <laughs> it may be wise to actually just bring ourselves back to balance, say this challenge, not the right time to take this challenge. So I think that that's an important question to ask and to know what my resources are, quite important. But what I think I'm encouraging us to do is, is there may be times when our resources are pretty decent, so to speak, and we can actually say, a difficulty is arising, ah, a chance to learn. When people take, get, take polls of what people have actually learned in their lives, a lot of people say they've learned the most from the difficult experiences, right? They say, oh, I learned so much from that, I hope never to have any kind of experience like that again in my life. Um, for the most difficult ones, but that, that, um, to remember that learning is possible with difficulties. Reflect on that, it's quite important. Okay, so here are some, a few guidelines to, for how to work with speech specifically. And these, this will, in a way, integrate some of what we've done the last few weeks. Bear in mind your intention in a difficult speech situation to connect compassionately with the other. Remember that the whole model of nonviolent communication is based on the intention to connect compassionately, as differentiated from my strategic attempt to win. And again, that may, we may not always be at a place where that feels real. Sometimes a sense of just surviving is a lot in a given situation. But at other times, we can really activate the intention to connect with the other. And that what that leads to is the possibility of actually having empathy for the person with whom we're having difficulties with and try to know, try to have a sense of what are the other person's feelings and needs to go into some of the territory we explored the last few weeks. So, to bear intention, to bear in mind the intention to connect and to, and to bring our own wisdom into it is really to, to remember the intention to cultivate wisdom and compassion. Not easy in difficult situations and in a way it's important to remember that we practice for the difficult situations by cultivating wise speech in protected, non-difficult 
situations first. And that's important, you know, that there's a kind of a learning sequence. And that's why, why we only, we didn't start with difficult situations at the beginning, but this is at the end of the six weeks. And so similarly, you may say to yourself, how can I best develop? And, uh, and it can be really trying out these practices and developing them in safer, non-problematic, not-so-difficult situations. That's really, because we have to cultivate the qualities and the abilities first. But all of us have difficult situations. You, we can't ask our lives, excuse me, I'm um, in the midst of cultivating wise speech. Um, I'm at an earlier stage. Um, I would please ask um, for the next, uh, well, two months, well, maybe make that three years. Um, no difficult situations, please. So the next point. <laughs> um, but it's good, it's good to actually have a sense. I am training and be conscious of going, of learning in more protected environments and also developing the mindfulness further. We, we can, in a difficult situation, remember the ethical guidelines that I mentioned. That goes a long way. And that's why it's important to practice for a period of a week or two weeks. Practice so that these become more familiar. Truthfulness, helpfulness, uh, coming from a warm heart. We can and, and appropriateness. We can always remind ourselves of those as we get more experienced with those uh, guidelines. It's as it were a light bulb goes on when we're uh, possibly in violation of those guidelines. That's extremely helpful. But just to remember, you have a difficult uh, conversation coming up. Remember the ethical guidelines. They're really protective in a way. They protect us from harming ourselves and harming others. Quite important. So you can have a little checklist, you know, at the end of, probably at the end of the morning, you'll have a checklist of 10 things to check. You know, like you're going, you're having a difficult conversation with someone. Okay. okay. Ethical guidelines. Okay. Check. <laughs> Mindfulness. Check. Remembering the intention to connect. Check. You know, there are, um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, bear intention, bear in mind the intention to be mindful. Part of what we've encouraged is cultivating mindfulness in the midst of speech, including difficult speech. And again, this is where we have to train in developing mindfulness on the cushion and then bring that into mindfulness in the midst of interaction in protected or safe situations. Only if we're pretty well developed there can at the moment someone says, you're a fool, Donald. <laughs> and then, okay. Mindfulness, feeling intense anger bubbling up. Conditioned aggressive words forming in my mind. <laughs> oh, why speech? Oh yeah, why speech? Okay. That's how it works, right? We, we, we have to notice and then a light bulb, after I might notice my initial reaction, then a light bulb goes on and I say, why speech? Oh yes, let's just be mindful. And it might be that I have such intense inner feelings that it's very skillful for me to say, you know, I'm feeling kind of upset by this interaction. I don't think anything good is going to come out of my mouth. Can we talk about this later? <laughs> that could be, that's extremely wise. 
that's connected with the fourth ethical guideline of good timing and appropriateness of the speech. So, um, but being mindful, very, very crucial. I have to develop the uh, ability to be mindful and that, of course, is its own training that takes a while. You know, to, can I, so we are also at the same time sitting, maybe going to retreats, doing daylongs, to cultivate the ability to be with my emotions, including my difficult emotions. It's a ma- major glory of our practice that it helps us be more mindful and more skillful with difficult thoughts and emotions. We have to train in that. So you can see how speech practice is a kind of integration of a lot of the abilities which we develop elsewhere, not necessarily even in speech. With our speech, we want to watch out very much for our tendencies in difficult speech situations to blame and judge. Track those thoughts. A lot of our earlier work with nonviolent communication invites us to use language which is non-polarizing, doesn't put the other person in the defensive, comes back to more direct experience and watches out for interpretive comments in a lot of what we've done. We, we saw that we can do that in a variety of ways by expressing my own feelings and emotions. So saying, I feel when, when, you know, when you came in an hour late to the, what I thought was the beginning of our meeting, I felt frustrated. Okay, so right there, I'm making an observation that is fairly neutral that the other person hopefully would agree with rather than saying, you know, uh, and I'm expressing my first-person emotion, I'm taking responsibility for my own experience rather than saying, you know, you're so irresponsible or, um, you know, I'm not sure I want to work with you anymore right away. This is what's that, those comments will uh, bring up the defenses quite quickly. And so we're looking for being careful with interpretations, blaming, judging in our minds and in our language. Very key aspect. Also, we're invited in a difficult speech situation, again, this follows the model of nonviolent communication, to focus in especially on my own underlying needs and the other, the other person's underlying needs and also feelings. So what this potentially does is take, we take this to the place where in um, my interaction with that person who comes in late, I may, um, my need is for having maybe an effective meeting, let's say, having an um, effective meeting that, so my, my deep need is for effectiveness, we can say something like that. Um, and the other person, we don't know the reason, uh, but we find it out. The other, we might find that the other person has a lot of things happening and the other person's need was to, you know, we don't know what happened. And my person might have got stuck in traffic, but um, we, we, we really look for the need of the other person. And remembering that many times people have deep needs that they express in very unskillful ways. That's this crucial point that we looked at the last few times, that people can be very unskillful, come in late. Um, I had a close friend um, 
who often, when I would have uh, dinner with her, would come very, very late. I got upset um, more than once. And when we actually looked closely at the situation, and she, we talked uh, more directly, non-defensively, it turns out that this, that she had had um, certain <coughs> childhood conditioning about being on time, and she rebelled against it. And her way of finding a sense of freedom was from coming late. Maybe not the most skillful way to find freedom, but this is, there was a very legitimate need beneath her actions. Even though they might be unskillful, even though she herself might say, I'd like to find freedom in other ways. And that's an old way that I used to find freedom. We've talked about the examples. You can look for deep needs in someone who is an alcoholic or a substance abuser. There may be deep needs that these may be unskillful ways of meeting them. How can I, when I'm in a difficult interaction, be empathic enough to have a sense of the deeper need? And some of it's a guess or an interpretation, and be careful with that. But that can be very important. And also, to have a sense in a difficult situation, what's the other person feeling? That's typically somewhere that most of us don't go if we follow our conditioned ways of being with difficult situations. So see, a lot of this goes against conditioning. Um, So those are some parts of the checklist, right? So it's like, um, have the intention to connect Stay with the ethical guidelines. Try to be mindful. Watch your blaming, polarizing, judging tendencies. Um, be, be mindful of them uh, in, in both language and internally. Uh, so particularly working with giving more direct ways of um, finding a neutral observation of the situation. This is where the language comes in and stating one's feelings. Uh, developing empathy towards the person with whom there's difficulty. We could probably go on, but that's a starting point. And some of the other things I mentioned have an understanding that the difficult situation can lead to learning. And I think it's also possible that, you know, particularly in the best case scenario, the other person is interested in inner practice and being skillful in speech. The best case scenario is that all five of those aspects of practice are happening. Maybe we have good friends who are into inner work, and that's potential. Or we're in a uh, community where those values are respected. Best case scenario, I'm doing my inner work. I'm trying to be skillful with speech. The other person is doing inner work, trying to be skillful with speech. And we try to collaborate to also be skillful. Best case scenario, maybe good friend, partner, something like that. And when it's possible, it's also important to remember that when we're skillful with a difficult situation, potentially the relationship gets deepened. That's very interesting. I think we probably know that from our experience, right? It's really good to remember that. In other words, not to go into a difficulty thinking this is simply a curse. (laughs) But that there's potentially a blessing in the difficulty. goes against much of our conditioning. Okay, so an exercise. We'll bring this into practice. And this is is something we'll just do individually.
primarily, uh, if we had another hour or two, I would do some dyads and do some practices. But for the sake of time, this is where you can take your piece of paper and your writing implement. Bring to mind again, and again, this, is, this will just stay with you. So this is private. If you want to talk about it when we have discussion, that's up to you. But it's um, just for yourself. Bring to mind that situation that you thought about earlier. And I'll give some guided questions and you can write some responses on the piece of paper. So first bring to mind a difficult situation, preferably the one you went to before. Bring to mind the actual situation, the feel, maybe the physical set up, if it's in a room, even imagine the walls, the chairs, and so forth. We'll, do, we'll move in two main phases. The first is more inner work to know what's going on for myself and the other. And the second will be a response. So we'll start with the inner work. Keeping the situation in mind, and this is where you might do some writing, I'd like to invite you to have um, on your sheet, put a line a vertical line through the uh, middle. Actually, divide, the, um, divide your paper up into four quadrants with one vertical line, one horizontal line. And on the left, the left two quadrants is uh, self. And on the right-hand quadrants is other. You can put that right at the top, self and other, or I, and you can cut the person's name if you wish. And then in the upper left, which is self, imagine a typical interaction and write down one or two of your feelings that you may have had. And I'd like you to think of a very specific situation, maybe one in the past. Write down one or two feelings. There may be quite a few, but just write down the one or two primary ones for yourself. And then in the lower left, quadrant, write what you sense to be the underlying universal need or the underlying need that's there in the situation. And here you can be helped by the sheet uh, on nonviolent communication which lists uh, different needs. Remember needs are, tend to be more universal like a need to, for understanding or autonomy or connection. 
physical nurturance, or it could be like that effectiveness in the meeting. And just write down one, one, again, one or two words there, not to be too complicated with any of this. So in my situation, I might name frustration at coming, someone coming late to what I thought was the beginning time, and then maybe my need is effectiveness. There might be other needs, but that's one of them. The top left box was feeling? Feeling. Feelings or emotions, yeah. And now the right-hand side, the other. And here we have to, in some ways, interpret or sense. But imagine an interaction that you may have had. What are the other person's feelings? Name one or two of the other person's feelings in this difficult interaction, as best you can know. And then, and this may be challenging, what, name one or two of the other person's needs as best you can imagine them. And what we're doing on the right-hand side we could call empathy work. It's really compassion or empathy work. What, are the other per, what can you imagine are the other person's needs in this situation? Again, doesn't mean that the person's being skillful, but what are the underlying needs? Now two more steps. If you had to describe using a neutral observation one aspect of the difficult situation in a way that the other person might agree about, just write one sentence. You can do this on the other side if you want to. So the example that I gave would be, I may have said, when, um, when you came an hour later than what I thought was the beginning of the meeting, is there, can you describe neutrally, you, as an observation that involves not blaming and not interpretation, 
something that's um, difficult for you, an actual state of affairs. And if this is too confusing, we can do, do your best on this. It's not, it's not at the heart of what we're doing now. But this would be easier for those who are here uh, the last two times. could be something like when you said this, when you said these words, being quite specific. And so the last piece is particularly bearing in mind your feelings and needs, and you might want to even look right at this, and the other's feelings and needs, bring yourself to a potential future interaction and integrating all of what we've done for the last five weeks. (laughs) Let your intuition say, how might I respond to this person? You don't have to write anything down unless you wish to, but just Bring your mind to a future situation and imagine yourself responding as best you can when something happens, when something comes up, maybe a chronic pattern. Imagine yourself responding in this situation on the basis of what we've been exploring as best you can, as best you can. Just take a minute or two with that. Bring to mind a potential future interaction with this person. How might you respond as skillfully as possible? And I think it can be helpful to start by just tuning in. What are the feelings and needs on both sides? We can finish up in the next uh, 30 seconds or so. If you want to take more notes later, we can, but I want to just have a little bit of discussion. So 
So having worked out this relationship, does anyone want to say anything? No. Um, any observations or questions? We can take maybe, is it okay to go maybe five minutes over just to have a little bit of time? That work, I'll go just try to finish by about five after 11. Okay. In the model you've given us for nonviolent communication, yeah. the statement, it begins with a neutral observation, a statement of our feelings and our needs, and yeah. then the request, would you be willing to? Yeah. Which is a nice, neat little package, yeah. but as I was trying to envision a future interaction with this person that I've been having difficulty with, it seems to me important and respectful to also, as part of that initial package, acknowledge the other person's needs. Yeah, very good point. And remind me of your name? Nancy. Nancy, that's right. Um, Nancy's point was to, um, we have that model. And as I've mentioned last time, the model has in the, in the way the language is used, and even in just identifying four aspects, I think it's a little bit arbitrary, and it, you know, I think we feel free to modify it or even disagree a little bit with some of, some of the emphasis, but it's very helpful. But the question is really, um, we, we don't want to really use that in a formulaic way. I've heard that at, when, you know, I've heard that in some nonviolent communication communities, when people get at each other, they use the nonviolent communication lingo in strategic ways. <laughs> you can imagine, right? Um, uh, but very important is the moment of empathy. Because in a difficult situation, what typically happens is polarization happens very quickly, and the defenses are up, and their empathy goes out the window. Right? So in... A lot of these situations, actually showing that you care about the other person may be the most skillful thing to do first. You know, and actually, if you read Marshall Rosenberg's book, he makes that point quite a bit. You know, if we were doing a fuller treatment, empathy has a quite a large place. And often when there are difficult emotions, before actually going into how I feel, it can be very important to show that I know that you're upset or something like that. So, great point. The, the um, having some sense of empathy, which, of course, to be, for me to be empathic in a place where I'm often triggered requires a lot of mindfulness and a lot of clarity of intention, right? Not so easy. Uh, but that's a very good place to go. And, of course, it has to be sincere. This is what I was saying about the way that this language can be used in a manipulative way. You know, I can actually be highly strategic and be trying to win and be using what looks like compassionate language, right? I'm sure some people have developed that to the point of it being an art form. Um, so, great point, please. Yeah. Um, what I noticed was that uh, when I wrote down um, myself and the other, what, what, each, what each person really needed that um, it was the same thing. Everyone here? Yeah. <laughs> How many people experience something like that? That's very, very interesting, isn't it? The point is that noticing in some of these difficult communications that actually uh, both parties maybe want, and it might often be a sense of connection, right? Something like that. Or, and, and, people's, and, and people are frustrated on both sides, but they actually want the same thing. 
And this, this, this is one of the reasons why focusing on needs can be so uh, revelatory. Because we often see that we want the same things, and yet we have, may have fought for 20 years. I mean, it's sad, isn't it? And so it can be a lot of... But it's true. And when we go to the level of needs, it tends to evoke compassion. Not easy to get there. Mediators can spend years trying to get, or, you know, a huge amount of energy trying to get people to the place where they actually can feel the other as a human being or another side in a, in a larger conflict. So it's a huge point. And so bearing that in mind can really soften things. Yeah. But not easy to get there. Because, again, it, it's, um, it's normal. I don't know if normal is the word, but we should expect that in most difficult situations, we will tend to go to our conditioned reactions. So not to be discouraged if that happens. You get enthusiastic from doing this. That's where the practice comes in. We have to keep on practicing this. And I think over time, that, <clears throat> that mindfulness and that empathy becomes more who we are. You know, and I'm sure we know that in many situations. Yeah. Other reflections, observations? You, you had one, did you? Oh, I just, um, when looking at the underlying uh, needs of the other person in this yeah. situation, it really um, makes a shift into um, not just looking at yourself. Yeah. You know, and what I want, what I need, and then getting to that point of, well, like your friend who, who continually came late. And yeah. You know, the reaction now that I would have would be like, what happened? You know, yeah. What happened to you? you know, are you okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not like, oh, I'm, you know, upset that you're late, but you yeah. know, to kind of make a shift of energy in their direction to kind of think about, wow, this person really is upset. Yeah. Yeah, that's a shift. And along the way, <laughs> we study our own reactive patterns. I haven't probably emphasized that so much, but a lot of our work here is to have a lot of patience for studying how I am reactive and watching it over and over again. A lot of spiritual practice is kind of glorified as being this wonderful thing where we get in touch with beautiful (laughs) states, but a very significant part of it is watching our own bad habits over and over again. Sorry. (laughs) Please. Maybe one or two more, and then we'll yeah, have to close. I wanted yeah. to tell you my reaction. Yeah. Um, now that I'm mindful and I can tell and notice that, yeah. <laughs> that I got a headache doing this. I have been try- I've been fighting getting up and leaving for the second half here. Yeah. And so I kept saying, no, this is exactly what you need. Yeah. Keep going. And, um, but when it was done, and I found the thing in common, and I got a headache. <laughs> That's my reaction. I get headaches. You get headaches when with the difficult situations. Yeah. 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 So that's um, what. So uh, what's what's your response to to to? You probably knew. Did you? Are you seeing that more clearly now? My response is that I need to keep going and that this is healthy. Yeah. But when you talk about mindfulness, I mean, a headache is a direct experience that that the source of the headache is difficult to tell. So I can tell when I go into. You know, I need. Yeah. So headaches are okay because they're telling me what's yeah. going on, but how to live my life skillfully so that I don't get headaches is... <laughs> right. No, it's, it's really, um, you know, that, that's, 
So that's really no, important to notice. And um, one way to look at it is that um, we each have learned, and there may be, I don't know, there may be biochemical tendencies as well, but we each have learned to work with stress in a certain way. Yeah. I know that when you look at the relation of stress to the body, for example, some of us localize stress in the head, some of us localize in the stomach, some of us localize in the belly, right? I mean, I think I tend to localize it down here. And, and um, to know that that's uh, something you've learned probably, I'm, I'm guessing, or at least as a, as a um, reaction to stress. So what would be possible, what should be possible, again, I don't, there may be other factors which I don't, don't know, but let's assume that you've learned that as a reaction which can also, it can give you information that there's stress, so that's the positive aspect of it, right? But might there be a, a way to learn um, how, how, because in a sense it's not different from me reacting to a difficult situation by getting self-righteous or blaming the other. This is a little different, it's more somatic, right? But I have to learn the nature of that reaction, I have to look at it, and I have to find a different way to respond. Now, you might, that for you, that might be, you know, by finding ways that work on a more somatic level, right? Maybe meditation, maybe, um, a lot of people, you probably have worked with people who can be skillful with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good because you asked me how I responded. And I just realized, oh, the headache is the reaction. Yeah. Keep going. So you untangled the string. Yeah. So that's good. Thank you. Great. Yeah. I'm happy to, we're at the end. I'm happy to talk more, but that sounds no, like it was helpful. Yeah. I mean, af- afterwards. Um, great. So let's, um, this could go, we could stay for another hour. And um, I'll invite you to explore and take notes. And if you have any great or even <clears throat> medium-level insights. <laughs> I would love to hear about them. You can write to me, Care of Spirit Rock, or I think Care of my website. And there's an email um, capability. And I'd love to hear, because I'm actually thinking of doing a book on why speech. And this is very rich, and it's really, I've been energized by this. And s- stories are the lives of these kind of books. So if you have stories, I'd love to hear. And we can also talk when I come back the next time. So. Let's just sit for quietly for 30 seconds to finish. And bring to mind what was helpful and any ways that you want to take, any intentions that come to take this out into your everyday lives. And we close by remembering that we explore wise speech and how to be with difficult situations, not just for ourselves, but also very much for the benefit of others. And may our practice and exploration together be of benefit to all others. Thank you for your attention and the presence during this series on wise speech, and may the practice continue. Thank you.
you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.